Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a journalist and podcaster. You can check out my written stuff at my newsletter, jessesingle.substack.com. And my uh, my other podcast is with Katie Herzog. It's called Blocked and Reported. You might like it. Thank you for whoever just did the poop emoji. It's a good Saturday for it. Um, I don't have a huge amount to say today. People should jump in the queue if they have a question about anything at all. But I, I've been thinking a little bit as I, like everyone else, mainline CNN and, and Twitter feeds uh, for news coming out of Ukraine. It's sort of an interesting like real-life experiment of just how hard it is to actually be anti-war in a sense because I think a lot of people my age, the Iraq war was really a formative experience for us and in terms of like how much damage our own country can do to the world and how much horror we can unleash on one country. Obviously, that's a little bit of an oversimplification because our actions caused a lot of stuff that wasn't done by us, like malicious and so forth. Uh or ISIS. But I, I think that really put a lot of us in a place where it's like the U.S. just cannot. We want us to stay out of stuff. We don't want us to be the world's police. And that's a very easy thing to think intellectually. And intellectually, it's very easy to like look back on how things escalated in Iraq in a totally out of control way and how Afghanistan was a disaster. And we never really did much good there and likely caused a lot of harm on that. But then when you see the the 40 mile Russian convoy or you see civilians getting blown up and you think about just how weak Russia is militarily compared to NATO compared to the rest of the world. Uh, they're obviously strong compared to Ukraine. It's just very easy to slip into that mindset of let's just blow these fuckers up and let's just help save the Ukrainians. And I think in the moment, in that heated moment of emotion, it's just very easy to forget all the things that can go wrong and what sort of a multi-party war would look like, even if it didn't go nuclear, which would always be this lurking threat in the background. But, um, you know, so I, to the extent I'm even qualified to have an opinion on this, I, I understand a no-fly zone would really mean shooting down Russian jets, which could lead us apocalyptic places. But it's just it's very hard for me to keep those different thoughts in my head at the same time because I am... Um, these are just horrible scenes to watch, and I feel so bad for anyone caught in Ukraine now. And, uh, yeah, that's sort of what I've got. I hope you guys have questions because I prepared less than usual today. I thought it would be more question-heavy. Thank you, Colin. You bailed me out. Others got to get in the queue, too. What's up, Colin? Hey, Jesse. How's it going? Good. Um, yeah, I'm kind of in a similar position, too. Um, I don't really like the U.S. getting involved in wars, um, and I think – I think a lot of us probably are in a similar position. I don't know if you've, if you listened to the most recent episode of the fifth column. I did. That was um, interesting because that, that's a group of folks, including Taibbi, who are very skeptical of U.S. power. But even Taibbi, yeah, he got a little, yeah. he got a little squishy. Um, but I think something that I've thought a lot about, and it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really help anybody in the short term. It doesn't really help the Ukraine in the short term, or Ukraine, I should say. Um, but it's just to remember how much um, invading a sovereign country <laughs> tends to backfire. Um, we learned that, or the U.S., I should say, learned that. Um, and Russia actually should have learned that in the past. But uh, I, I feel like... Sometimes we have learned the, that in the exact same countries as Russia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, so short term, it's it's probably really hard to watch, but long term, there's there's probably a chance that that not only is this going to be embarrassing for Russia, but it's probably going to be uh, uh, devastating for Putin. So it's weird to think about. I mean, this is one of those areas where I don't feel that bad speculating because I I haven't seen anyone who's an actual expert on this stuff explain what Putin's end game is here, but. <laughs> You imagine a like a best case outcome where he controls most or all of Ukraine, but there's a puppet government no other government in the world other than Belarus and Syria recognizes, and there's an insurgency drawn from 44 million enraged Ukrainians who have access to basically all the all the Western weapons they want. That's the best case scenario. So I don't I don't I agree with you that in the long run I don't understand how this could end up in Putin's favor, but. Um, when you look at the way Russia tends to handle these sorts of situations, they don't they don't really mind killing many tens of thousands of civilians. Along. Yeah, um, something that that's encouraging, though, and we only see one side of this, of course, where where we are, because it's a propaganda war in its own way. But is is that there are thousands of Russian citizens who really only have access to state media who are just vehemently against this this uh invasion so it it's it doesn't seem to be all that popular in russia it's obviously not all that popular in ukraine so i think uh as far as an insurgency which i mean that that's long and ugly and bloody as well i i really just don't see i don't see a good end game for russia in this no matter no matter what steps are taken really so thanks Carl. that's uh, a little bit encouraging i guess I mean, nothing's really encouraging now. Andrew, what's up? Yeah, um, I was just curious. Do you have any reliable sources about what the people in Russia actually do feel about the invasion? Because all I've seen is like a few protesters um, on the street. But everything I've heard from people previous to this about um, how people in Russia feel about Putin in Russia is that he's very popular. My no, I, the short answer is no. The long answer is I, I don't think we have great accurate polling out of Russia because I don't think the government wants like honest polling. Um, for what it's worth, on the episode of the fifth column, we just mentioned, um, you know, Michael Moynihan, who follows this stuff closely, just thinks that in any free and fair election, Putin would be doomed. And I at least trust that he knows more about this than I do. I, I'm very curious about. And we talked about this briefly on Blocked and Reported, whether and to what extent in 2022 a country as big as Russia and as technologically developed as Russia can actually seal its people off from the truth. Because this, this isn't North Korea. Like Russians are extremely literate, extremely savvy. There is like they've really tried to stifle dissent, but there is obviously a history of dissent there and of civil, like liberal civil society. So I wish I knew the answer to that. I also wish I knew the answer to how the Russians themselves are going to react to overnight a depression being imposed on them financially, an economic depression. Like, will they understand that this happened because of what Putin did? Or will they, you know, people, when people get attacked, they often sort of circle the wagons of, around their own country. So you could see that not working. But um, this is all a very long-winded way of saying that I don't know. And if anyone can point me to like reliable, good polling on this or good reporting, I would love to uh, help circulate it. Well, thank you, Jesse. Uh, I, I've just gone off of a few Russian people I know who say that he, they basically, the thing I've heard is that the older generations support him because he suppresses the criminal element. 
but I'll definitely check out that um, other podcast. Yeah. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Sarah, what's up? Hi, sorry. I've never done this before. Welcome. Um, hey. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to bring up actually the Holodomor and Walter Durante. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. Um, so one of my closest work friends uh, is based in Kiev. He's a back-end developer. Um, he's fighting right now. Um, and he, you know, I'm just so thankful over the last few years we did get to spend time together and he taught me a lot about Ukrainian history and um, I don't know I just I was a I guess sporadic listener of the daily New York Times podcast and I just I haven't been able to listen to it at all ever since the whole Ukraine thing started because the way that you know the only time the New York Times has mentioned anything about Walter Durante's role in covering up was essentially a genocide in the 1930s yeah was timothy snyder's essay last june that just mentioned it in one sentence in passing can i just did it describe i'll describe in, in two sentences for folks tell me if i have this right this was the holodomor which was a famine imposed on ukraine by stalin that killed millions of people yeah like four and, million people and during the 1930s Durante was a correspondent from there he won a pulitzer for for basically genocide denial is that that's not overstating it right yeah, so the Pulitzer Committee didn't uh, take away his Pulitzer because the the year that he won the coverage for was actually the year before the coverage where he was actually basically just uh, writing in the New York Times the Rus- uh, the Soviet uh, Party you know, propaganda that was lies. Yeah. Um, so, he, you know, the Pulitzer wasn't revoked, um, which on a technical level, I suppose, makes sense. Um, I, just, I just feel like, uh, you know, just the way the New York Times can be with its moral kind of position about things. Like, the fact, yeah. like how do they, I just wonder, like, do the people who work there, like someone like Sabrina Tavernisi, I saw, like, she actually has a degree in Russian studies. Um, and she's, you know, in, reporting from Ukraine right now. Like, how is it that, is it that they don't know about this? Or, like, is there some sort of institutional thing where you don't want to actually reckon with That's re- That's re- the question of which role, reckonings know? happen and don't is really interesting because the Times, like a lot of other liberal institutions, has reckoned, I think, with certain aspects of, like, publishing race science in the past and stuff like that. Um, no, I, I think that's a really provocative and interesting question. Like, should the New York Times, you know, at least – do an article saying like we really contributed to the worst thing the Soviets ever did to Ukraine. We were we were complicit in covering it up. I mean, I would read that article just as sort of um, a historical treatment of it. I, I can't I can't really see a good reason not to do that because I, I don't think anyone would be like, well, they screwed that up in the 1930s. I'm not going to trust them anymore. I think if anything, it would give them maybe more legitimacy to um, because of the self. Yeah, I completely agree because when I uh, I just searched on Twitter Walter Durante and it's basically only Fox News people that will just invoke his name, you know, just to basically bash the Times. I think it would, you know, make them actually, it would be much better for them to actually address it. And I love them to do that article and I really hope they do. I think that's a really fair point. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And I hope your friend's okay. It goes without saying. Thank you so much. All right, Pongo 2. Oh, so there's only a few people in the queue, so more folks should jump in with whatever questions, comments, observations you have. Sorry, go ahead, Pongo. Yeah, uh, I think I'm probably going to be 
uh, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm a little, I tend to be a bit more hawkish than I suspect most of your listeners are. So maybe pushing back a little bit on, I guess, uh, what you, the point you opened with. I, I, I like the essay you sort of wrote contra De Boer recently um, about uh, like the whole American solipsism idea. Um, but uh, I think that maybe you didn't go far enough because I, I, I think for our generation and, you know, talking about millennials here, because the Iraq war loomed so large and everything and like, uh, like that was sort of my political, uh, the time when I sort of became politically aware as well. And uh, it can lead, it can lead to a, 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 ver a view of every like viewing like American or Western intervention in things as being universally uh, bad and always having bad outcomes. Yeah. And um, you frequently see this, the, the statement of, for instance, that, you know, all the time, all the times the U S intervenes is like having these bad outcomes. Uh, when will we learn that like uh, military intervention always is always terrible, et cetera. Um, I remember there was uh, a couple weeks ago, someone, uh, someone tweeted something like, uh, tweet out your favorite uh, mil U.S. military intervention since World War II. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, it's all terrible. I just tweeted a, one, of the, one of the satellite pictures of North and South Korea. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> like, there are, there are, like, bad stories of the U.S., of U.S. intervention, but there are good ones, too, and, and they don't tend to come up very much, so... Like you, you, like I, I know that we tend to view the Iraq War as being like 1991 and 2003, with nothing in between. But for the entire 1990s, basically, the U.S. Air Force was defending the Iraqi Kurds from genocide through an intervention in in Iraqi airspace, right? Yeah. Um, and at the same time, like we were, we also, or the U.S. also, and NATO in general, also intervened in the in the Balkans to prevent another genocide. Like I, I grew up in grew up in Western Canada with a lot of people of like uh, Croatian or Bosnian descent. And, you know, there's a reason why Bosnia is one of the most pro-American places. In the no, I, I was, I spent, um, I mean, I don't want to do that thing where you go a place a week and you spend, pretend to know much about it, but I did, I spent a week in Sarajevo visiting a friend a few summers ago and that it, they were, they were being murdered. The, but Sarajevo was besieged and murdered because the Serbs just could sort of, shell them and snipe them indiscriminately. And that was a case of U.S. power doing good. And when we probably should have intervened sooner, right? Well, yeah, well, the, the Europeans started out doing it, but they weren't doing it very effectively. So it's, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I had it, anyway. So like that is something that you always never, or if you do see it mentioned, it'll be something Noam Chomsky says about how there was a, a bomb fell on the Chinese embassy in Belgrade or something. And that proves that it was all just a, plan to get the Chinese, the Chinese or something or American imperialism, despite the fact that, you know, we literally ended the genocide. Uh, I, I, I think I think the, the difference, uh, these are fair points. And, uh, you know, there's also an instance of us, we were able to help some fleeing Yazidis who were being chased by ISIS. And um, I just think that I agree with you. I, I When I say the Iraq war was a formative event, that doesn't mean I never think the U.S. should intervene in any way. I actually, I remember people freaking out when, um, God, we launched like a few cruise missiles at one Syrian facility, and we we gave them warning. We said, we're going to destroy this facility, evacuate your people. And it was uh, us just like doing the tiniest little thing to prevent Assad from massacring civilians, which he's done with impunity. People acted like that was the worst act in human history. And I hate that because I think that's like right. a dunderheaded way of looking at it. But um, I just think the difference in this case is like, whereas 
the negative outcomes of us bombing Serbs to protect Bosnians, they're real. You you kill people, but that's sort of different from the possibility of a war that spirals out of control and pulls in more of Europe and potentially goes nuclear. Right. Yeah, well, just to be clear, I, I am not at all, I mean, I think I, I, I think I was the one who explained to you on Twitter why a no-fly zone isn't like practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to impute that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but but I, I, I think I'm trying to make a larger point about the way people, especially on the left, but even increasingly on the right, who grew up in the early aughts, like, view these things. Because a lot of it was, like, just the fact that George Bush Jr. was a terrible fucking president who, um, like, prob- probably will in, in future history be viewed as the turning point where, uh, or a major turning point in the history of American, like, global power for the worst, yeah. right? Like the Kaiser Wilhelm of U.S. or something <laughs> like that. But, um, yeah, so I, but you really do need to look, view it in like the larger context. And this goes back even further to like, um, like even like the Gulf War in 1991. Like, do we think the world would be a better place if Saddam Hussein had conquered the entire Persian Gulf, which was basically his objective? Uh, like he was, he wasn't just invading Kuwait, he was invading Saudi Arabia and, uh, who knows how far it would have gotten. Nobody was, nobody besides the United States was equipped or prepared to stop him, except possibly Israel. So yeah. like that was the last time before this current one that we had like a aggressive war of conquest since World War II. And the U.S. basically unequivocally put a stop to it. And in doing so demonstrated their, at that time, absolute conventional military supremacy, which served as probably an excellent warning for many other people. And, or a couple years later, the Taiwan Strait crisis, like uh, Bill Clinton protected Taiwan without firing a shot when the Chinese were apparently preparing to either invade or bustle them into surrendering. Or, but uh, yeah, sir, I can go on and on. But no, I, I, these I, are I, fair we, points. We yep. need to have we need to have a broader view of it. We need to understand that like nothing is ever perfect. Like any time you're any time, but. It's uh, it, it turns into a war. That's in some sense like a failure, but it's not always the U.S.'s failure. Sometimes it is the best option, and sometimes even that will have consequences. But I, I do think there's also definitely a push, and I think a lot of this comes from Chomsky of looking at all, only the negative outcomes of everything and uh, <laughs> focusing on that to a ridiculous extent, and not in, in, not entertaining any counterfactuals about okay, what would have happened if we didn't? And I can shut up now. No, I mean those those are all fair points, and I, I don't I um I welcome dissenting views. Uh, yeah, thank you for the call, Pongo. Pongo two, sorry. Teak, yeah, what is up? Hey Jesse, happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. Um, well, no, it's not a happy Saturday, but I, I get what you're saying. Hey, any day above ground's a happy day. There so, we go. Um, I had a question for you. So I've seen, as everyone has, you know, images of these. Uh, Ukrainian civilians looking for, you know, AR-style weapons and, and trying to defend their homeland. And I've always been a person who thought domestically there's no reason for anyone to to ever need to own an AR. You know, I, I go hunting and have a hunting shotgun, but don't have anything like that. And seeing these images and watching this has made me kind of rethink my position. So I'm not as as certain as I once was, and I was curious if uh, if you had any thoughts on that uh, about about yeah whether or not civilians should or should not have access to those military style weapons. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm still against it because we're the U.S. and I think you need to factor in time and place. Uh, obviously, when the Second Amendment was written, things were very different, even just the role of militias. Uh, 
there there are a lot of countries in the world where you walk around and it's not unusual to see people just having rifles on their shoulders for personal protection. And there's often reasons for that. I mean, in Israel, you see that all the time, the couple times I've been there. So no, it hasn't changed my view of American gun policy, which is to be clear, pretty underdeveloped. Cause I don't know much about guns, but um, I, I just think in a country like Ukraine, things are very different. If you face actual threats of invasion, things are different. When I see guns rights folks, um, defend uh, people having AR style weapons and the like, because like, what if our government comes after us? I, I just sort of think at that point you're so screwed and that's such, that's not going to be a real fight that um, in that sort of apocalypse, I'm not willing to take the downsides of our current gun policy in exchange for maybe if the entire government attacks the people, we'll be able to hold out for one extra day. I just don't see that as a fair trade. I, d- does that make sense to you? The, the contextual differences? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, Appreciate it. Thanks for it, Jazzy. Yep. Thank you. All right. More folks get in the queue if you can. More questions. Got a couple more for now. Shauna, go for it. Hey, thank you. Um, Okay, kind of dissecting this, and I'm going to just be very honest. I have learned more about Eastern politics than I have in my previous 40 years. I'm saying, uh, sorry, in the last month. I've uh, tried to educate myself like any um, dumb novice bystander where we fill our uh, minds with information when we can't take action. That's kind of, it's like this impotent frustration, like I can't do anything else, so I'm just going to try to learn, right? Um, So I'm coming from a very novice uh, background, I'll put it out there. But of course, I'm a big fan of the fifth column. Um, I listen to the Reason Roundtable. Um, you know, it's interesting to listen to libertarians uh, work through this because that's when your libertarian beliefs truly get tested, right? As Jonah Goldberg would say, you get tested as a libertarian in your view of war and your view of children. Um, And so, and I also go to the dispatch too, because I feel like they're very level-headed on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. Um, So I've been relying relying upon them. And then I guess I don't, um, and since I'm not active on Twitter, I'll, I'll listen to other commentary, read other commentary, and I'll reference Twitter beefs that I don't care about. But I'm also trying to understand the background that other people are coming at, like an Aaron Mate or um, from that view of, hey, the U.S. has blood on their hands, so to speak. I'm, I'm not using actual reference, you know, uh, quotes here, but you know, this is this is our problem. We've set up this problem back in, I guess, 2014, when we may have had a direct hand in saying who was going to get, quote, elected um, democratically. And, and that information I don't understand. So I thought maybe, because I do appreciate, I want to see current events from all perspectives. I'm I, I don't listen to the, the the far right on this issue when I see that it's just they're looking for some political gain. So I immediately dismiss that. But I am I'm trying to understand this of our role and path, you know, and then even the conversation between Andrew Sullivan and uh, and Apple, Apple, Apple Bomb, Bomb, I think yeah. is her name. Yeah, they had a great, um, you know, very lively discussion a couple of weeks ago on his podcast. So I thought maybe I'm, I'm looking to you 
Jesse Single as my um, European history teacher right now. You get me up to speed, please. Oh sir. God, no, I can't. I'll, I I can just give like my my lay person's response to a lot of the claims about the U.S. role, which is uh, the U.S. has done horrible stuff, but it, all the evidence we have suggests Ukrainians have certain views on on wanting to be more closely affiliated with the EU and to a lesser extent NATO. I mean, the most recent polling was. 53% wanted to join NATO, and I think they view Russia as a threat, and, and you can see why. And I think there's a failure to grant them agency, and there's a failure to grant Russia agency. This idea that Russia has been provoked into invading Ukraine, I, I think, is sort of nuts and, and ignores a lot of stuff Putin has said and ignores a lot of history. So I, I'm all for a lot of America bashing with regard to foreign policy and and. It's hard not to read about the Iraq or, or even Vietnam War and not view us as having done some horrible stuff. I just don't think our role was that big in causing this to happen because we know why it happened. It happened because Vladimir Putin launched a deranged war to try to rebuild a little bit of the USSR He's and because he's crazy. So anyway, I just find it hard to look at what this particular conflict and uh, – blame the U.S. There's a lot of things I'll blame the U.S. for, including the the resurgence of global jihadism. I think that was largely because of U.S. policy. We really created fertile terrain for that. I'm not against blaming the U.S. on principle, but in this case, I just don't buy it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I was trying to um, understand a little bit more of the background because everything feeds upon itself. And I do, obviously, Putin is, quote, crazy, but he's been pretty good about indicating through his speeches what he's wanted for a long time. So sometimes you, um, you know, when a crazy person tells you what he wants, you, you believe him. So, yeah. and uh, I think all of this is everyone has in the back of their mind, okay, how is this going to affect China and Taiwan, right? Because everyone, that's, that's another side of this coin that we don't know yet how it's going to play yeah, out. So. It is a mess. Uh, thank you, Shada. Thank you. Kelly. I feel bad that I'm not more knowledgeable on like the nitty gritty stuff. So I can just give impressions here, but what's up Kelly. Um, yeah. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, I, I wanted to start out by saying, you know, I support our side and I hope we win, but I do think it's a mistake to sort of try to, reach out for these great dramatic you know, democratic principles. It really is a case of real politique on all sides. There aren't really strong principles at stake. If you look at, you know, this, this, this sort of uh, create a breakaway, you know, invade, create a breakaway state and set up a puppet, puppet government, you know, that goes back to the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus in 1974. Uh, that still exists as a puppet state, still, you know, recognized only by Turkey. When was the last time we had any sanctions against Turkey for, for that action? And if you, you look forward to something like what had happened in Serbia, uh, there's been significant demonstrations in Belgrade in support of the Russians, because as much as they want to be part of Europe and want an EU passport and want to be able to, you know, go drink lattes in Paris, they're still a little bitter about the fact that the United States and NATO supported a breakaway state and, you know, bombed them for 78 days to try and get them to relinquish this territory. It was a little hard to swallow to hear Joe Biden say, who does Putin think he is that he can just sort of declare a new a new state with Donbass and Luhansk 
when that's kind of what we did with Kosovo, certainly what we did with South Sudan. So not that those weren't sort of in our interest, and I support doing things in our interest, but there's not really a strong principle at stake here. That, yeah, I mean, I, I, those, I'm not going to pretend to know about those areas, but that, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, the argument that the U.S. has not acted uh, with principle with regard to foreign policy. So um, those strike me as uh, fair observations. Uh, well, well, I appreciate that. And I, and I did want to say something about what the, the last caller said about the history in, in 2014. Um, we weren't really honest brokers in that situation and did a lot to destabilize the country. And, you know, we talk about sort of democracy and elections. Well, the previous president was was elected in, you know, Yanukovych was elected in a democratic election, one of the freest and fairest they've ever had in that country. But we were we were just fine with supporting a, you know, demonst- a violent demonstration to destabilize and overthrow his government. Uh, Ukraine was a country that was badly divided, still is, although it's not closely divided anymore because Crimea was annexed and that was one of the sort of most pro-Eastern parts of the country. Um, and to just sort of uh, support something like that. And then we supported a government, uh, uh, Yats his government that was really quite belligerent towards the Russians. If we had encouraged them to have a much more conciliatory view towards their Russian minority, we may not have gotten to where we are now, but you know, we actually said in front of the UN, we won, you lost, get over it. And the Russian attitude was, this is not over. Gotcha. And that's kind of where we are now. Thanks for the call, Kelly. I appreciate it. Shamile. Oh, yeah, Jesse. Hey. Hey. Um, I was wondering if, if maybe Vladimir Putin wasn't so much crazy as he woke up, say, a couple of days ago and just had this realization, I fucked up. Um, is there any off-ramp for him? Yeah, I mean or that seems he, like the problem, right? It doesn't seem like what that what what would that even be? It took us twenty years to find a way out of Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't even a country we were we were we launched to conquer it. We launched it to get the terrorists out. Yeah, I that that I mean that's one of the things where again I don't see. I do try to rely on experts for this stuff, but I don't really see anyone offering a way where that this could end without horrible stuff happening. So that's my intuition too. Yeah. I mean, I got nothing. Um, have you ever checked out the uh, Russian propaganda uh, news site? Taz? What's it called? Or whatever. Uh, T-A-S-S? Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't checked. Um, yesterday, like, they had three articles about the uh, talks in the uh, in Belarus before the above any articles on the Ukraine. So, you know, if, if Vladimir Putin wants to uh, declare that he's leaving the Ukraine because they've accomplished everything or tell some sort of lie to his people to stay in power, um, I'd be willing to sign it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you, Jamal. Siddhartha, what's up? Jesse, um, I, I just thinking about, you know, how... 
this sort of like uh, I think a long term crisis in uh, in mainstream media or corporate media has sort of led me to uh, a lot of different independent voices, and those voices are really across the political spectrum. Like as much as I like uh, Ann Applebaum and David Frum, I think that there are some holes in their worldview, um, and uh, and 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 some of those holes are sometimes, you know, filled by people who are more on the populist right. Similarly, I regard myself as being, you know, uh, left liberal, uh, but I have found a lot of holes in, in sort of the, the, the average left liberal worldview um, that have, you know, that have, uh, you know, the, and, and some of those gaps have been filled by people uh, on the radical left. So I try to like, you know, get a diverse uh, spectrum of viewpoints. But one thing that I noticed like, is that there, so there are a lot of independent voices that, that I sort of follow. And then a lot of them were, I think, fairly skeptical of, of U.S. intelligence with regards to this invasion and, and, and brought up a lot of the historical context about why uh, Russia would be nervous about, uh, about uh, U.S. meddling in Ukraine. Um, but, but just, I, I did come across, you know, some of them who didn't just, uh, didn't just sort of like doubt the intelligence or, or raise skepticism, but like ridiculed, absolutely ridiculed the idea that this would happen. And, and since the invasion did happen, some of them, I think have, uh, kind of come clean. Taibi did. And, Taibi did, and and Sagar and Jetty is another one that I I, I recall him saying like I got it wrong, um, but you know there's some others like Rani Akalik or uh, Jackson Hinkle who have really doubled down, and I think that this is a sort of like you know like it, it's sort of like a parallel crisis, right? Where a lot of people this is like say that the 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 mainstream view is always wrong, or is usually wrong. Um, have have sort of bought into their own hype a little bit, and and this is a moment where I think you know that 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 sort of like a reflexively independent view ought to be somewhat helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think people should be, depending on the context, they should be like moderately anti-establishment, and you should realize that people screw up. You should also realize that like, um, you know, someone like Ann Applebaum, who's who's written lengthy books on sort of Soviet. 20th century history might be good at some stuff, but not good at other stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I do, I do think like a really telling moment reputationally for a thinker is when they clearly get something wrong to see how they respond to that. And I was at least pleased that Taibi issued a quick thing saying he was wrong and also like explaining accurately why he was wrong. And I think he basically said he was like too much in the camp of like the U S couldn't be right about this basically. So no, I think that, I think it's really useful moments like this for like getting a better sense of who to trust, which as you're saying, we're in a difficult moment for that question of who to trust. Everything's um, epistemically unsteady. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's, there, there is always this danger of having a sort of overly ideological uh, worldview um, and not sort of accepting that like facts don't always line up with your worldview. It's sort of like there are people who, who need to force it to be so. And I think there are people who can take a step back and say, well, look, I'm a journalist and I do come from a particular you know, perspective, uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm always right. And I think it's okay to be wrong. 
Um, and I think the trust that we uh, that we give to you know to these various um, voices is based on 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 not just on their um, accuracy, uh, but also on their yeah. humility. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I, um, I you know I, I did speak to you some time ago about Joe Rogan. I mentioned that, like, I don't really consider myself a fan, but I don't think he's a monster. I think, like, just further, I have sort of felt like, okay, you know what? One thing that he does offer is 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 a great deal of humility. And I think it's, like, sort of in some ways tied to his credulity, which can be frustrating at times. But he doesn't claim to know everything. And, and, and I do appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that in what Taibi did and what Njeti did. Um, and, and, and those people who are willing to say like, okay, look, I got it wrong. Yep. Uh, That's just good point. Thank you, Sartha. Suze, what is up? I think you're a new caller, right? Yeah, I've never, I've never called before. Um, Welcome. I've been reading your, uh, stuff for, um, at least like over a year. I've been a subscriber. Thank you. Um, and, but I've been really concerned with the, um, you know, the last article that you wrote, or I know you've published one since then, like, you know, the framing of this conflict and the idea that the United States should get involved to help Ukraine, I think is super dangerous. Yeah. Um, to be clear, I didn't write that in the, um, you were just saying the idea in general, right? I, I haven't said that because I don't think that. Um, didn't didn't you say that in that final paragraph or something? Like... No, that that article was more. Again, I was disagreeing with Freddie DeBoer, who was basically, in my view, adopting a view where like the only group, the only player here that has agency in the U.S. I was just saying Russia has agency, Ukraine has agency, and we should understand that they're they're actors too. But I I do not think. At the top of the show, I talked about how I can feel that righteous pull of I just want to bomb the bastards. But no, I I think that would likely make things much worse. And I, I'm not in favor of um, direct U.S. NATO involvement. Okay, because, yeah, I mean, in the, you say, I think it's very easy to make a lefty anti-imperialist case for the U.S. to help Ukraine resist Russia. Oh, I'm sorry. I, you're right. I didn't phrase that well. I, no, I did not mean militarily. And I... um. I think wrongly thought that, that that would be clear from the rest of the article. By help, I mean sanctions. I'm I'm okay giving weapons, stuff like that. But yeah, not not direct military involvement. Yeah, the, I mean the sanctions and the weapons. I, I I didn't I didn't think you meant direct military involvement, but I see the sanctions and giving them weapons equally dangerous. Um, like I think you're really underselling the United States' role in this crisis um, from 2014 where we, Victoria Newland outright um, named who she wanted in the incoming government, including people who she named to be in the government to have close relationships with the government. Um, uh, Ole Tanyabak, who is a literal neo-Nazi and runs neo-Nazi militias um, that outright march through the streets saying they want Russians on knives. Um, they, there's, I don't know if you, uh, there's a, there's a study by the OSCE that outlines the amount of war crimes committed by the Ukrainians in the Donbass since 2014, just terrible torture 
um, horrible, horrible things that they've been doing to Russian speakers for anyone who is allied with Russia. So I think if you send me stuff, I'm happy to try to read up more on this. I think partly because of sort of the fog of war thing, my my sense is that some of this is stuff. I'm not meaning to shut you down. Some of this is stuff that I associate with Russian propaganda, including because there are like there's a longstanding historical thing of, oh, um, ethnic Russians in this region are being threatened. We're just acting to protect them, which I think has sometimes been used as a a pretense to be uh, a little bit expansionist now. Yeah, and I also really just I so I did I did just actually send you an email. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. If you can just just put it uh, ping me again after this, I'll, I will I will at least read what you send me and hear you out on that front. I'm just not in a okay. position to respond to it directly. I, I really do appreciate that because um, I know I think, you know, in, in my email might come out across very forceful, but that's because I'm just a very passionate about this and I don't want it to come across. Like yeah, I'm, there's nothing wrong uh, with that. Disrespectful to you, but I really, really hope that you can consider my arguments. Sure. Um, just just send that now. So I'll see you at the top of my advice and I'll try to give it a read in the next couple of days. OK, thank you. Thank you, Suze. Patrick, I uh, believe you'll be the last caller. Sorry, Pongo, but I, I did get you on already. And then I told you to get in the queue, and then I'm kicking you out. I apologize. I'm a bad person. But Patrick, go ahead. Uh, bark, bark, Jesse. Um, bark, bark. Uh, I have a very important question for you, which is, have you played Elden Ring yet? No, I really want to. I want to uh, – it looks so epic. I didn't think I would play – I've gotten less and less into games that can, like, eat up hundreds of hours of your life. This one looks worth – ruining your life temporarily over i want to play it on playstation 5 there aren't playstation 5 so i'm i think i'm just going to wait a while and hope to play it this spring is it i take it you've played it yeah i'm in it uh so i've never been a big uh souls person i think i played both uh demon souls and bloodborne for 45 minutes before throwing my controller angrily at the ground and cursing the skies yeah but this one i've actually really got into i'm in the second world i'm progressing around there's just like a ridiculous amount of stuff to do and explore, right? Yeah, and it's completely um, open in the sense of the fact that they give you no hand-holding whatsoever. So uh, there have been some complaints about uh, kind of on a disability access. Uh, I think Freddie had a piece about it, but basically that uh, because it's too difficult, people can't really uh, play it, which my response to that is always do what I do, which is go online, find a guide, and just have the guide tell you what to do when you're confused. There's also, I mean, yeah, I, there's going to be some games that not everyone can play or beat. Just there, there, That's true of literally anything that requires skill. Not everyone can play every piece of music. Exactly. Or uh, books are very difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. No matter how much we tell Judith Butler to not write in run-on sentences, they are going to do it. She's, but, an, she's clearly an enemy of disabled people or people with uh, you know, dyslexia. Yeah, but uh, it's fun and I would recommend it. Um, I don't really have too much to say about uh, kind of the Ukraine situation. Uh, I don't really want us to get involved. I do think that, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, I think Nicole Hannah-Jones got a little bit uh, beat up uh, for uh, a tweet that she had because I don't think she conveyed her point very well, which is that I do think that we, as United States citizens and kind of the global world, view this kind of atrocity happening much worse than, say, other atrocities that happen because of the people who are involved. Putin is the big bad man, so he's much worse than when, say, 
it's Saudi Arabia and Yemen who are engaged in kind of bloody conflicts. And I do think that is a fair point. I don't think that makes what's happening in Ukraine any less bad. But I do think we maybe should or shouldn't, I guess, because if you're viewing our involvement as causing things to get worse, maybe it's better that we're not uh, trying to be active as involved in other kind of global conflict. Yeah, I, so I was um, – we talked about this on the episode we just released today for our premium listeners, and I, I'm torn on it. I, th- I thought she, like – made a fairly reasonable point, but in like a too racialized of a way. Cause I, I just think if you look at like the wave of Muslim refugees that hit Europe, it, it was a mixed bag. There was German throwing open it. Uh, Angela Merkel threw open Germany's arms and accepted Russia. Uh, sorry, Muslim migrants from places like Syria. They were welcome. They were cheered at train stations. There was backlash after that. Different nations responded differently. I also just think there's an aspect of human nature where, when tragedy hits a place with a lot of ties to the U.S. and where any tourist can go safely in, until now and where anyone can study abroad, there's going to be more of a reaction when it, when tragedy strikes a place that's familiar to us and usually peaceful than places that are war-torn. But if the overall argument is we should spend more time uh, thinking about how we send the Saudis money and weapons so they can murder civilians in Yemen. Yeah, totally. I, I, I can't argue with that at all. Oh, I wasn't trying to defend like the kind of uh, refugee kind of point. Yeah. Oh, that kind of thing. And that, I think she's wrong about that, which feels more normal to say about uh, the author in question. I just do think that um, because we have more familiarity to it, we are reacting differently. But the facts don't really change the fact that people are still dying regardless. Like, sure, you have yeah. more tied to it, but just because you have more emotion tied to it doesn't mean that what happened in the other place is any less wrong. Yeah. And, and that, that's kind of my point about it, which I do think she's right about. And maybe we should kind of rethink our policies kind of in general. I, I I'm generally lean towards the camp that we don't need to be world police anymore. Not because I don't think the world needs policing, but just because I think Maddie Glaces had an article about this. Um, other people should maybe take up the slack for us a little bit. Um, I think we have a lot of things that we could be focusing internally, domestically on to improve our quality of life instead of necessarily needing to be the police for Europe. Yeah. But requires Europe actually uh, taking up that responsibility. So. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Patrick. appreciate the call. Right, thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, uh, I will make the same appeal I always make, which is that if you enjoy what I'm doing, tell other people about it, get them to check out the show and get on call-in. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do some more interviews coming up, and then some more sort of free form ones like this where I just take random questions. This is an area where like I have obvious gaps in my expertise, and I'm trying to sort of work around them. And it's tricky. It's not like when I'm talking about something I've reported on, uh, you know, more extensively or more extensively. I haven't reported on this at all. I don't know much about it. So um, yeah, it makes it tricky. But I'm trying to be be humble and just let other people voice their views and stuff. But uh, thank you as always for listening and I will uh, see you again soon. Bye.